This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Does it feel like when you talk to family or friends, people in the office or just look at the faces of people while walking on the street, many of them seem to be worried about something or they're very anxious? Maybe part of the reason is the recovery from the recession. Maybe it's all the problems we see right now, higher cost of education, company failing on their promises, terrorism. There also is that little thing of a presidential election coming up uh, in the very near future. But it does feel like in some respects that maybe, just maybe, this level of anxiety is kind of a new normal. Ruth Whitman takes a look at what seems to be a generation of anxious people right now in the U.S. In her book, America the Anxious, How Our Pursuit of Happiness is Creating a Nation of Nervous Wrecks. Ruth, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much. Uh, this is, uh, I mean, I, I will count myself as one of those people at times that, that probably falls into this category. <laughs> but that's because... Oh, me too, absolutely. But, 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 you know, I'm hosting a radio show, I, you know, I got three kids, divorced dad, you know, everything. <laughs> I think I'm I'm kind of like a lot of people in the United States, and, and I, it does feel like a new norm right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the uh, World Health Organization keeps records and says that America is the most anxious country on the planet. So, um, and by a wide margin, you know, the, the second, you know, the second place country is very far down the list from America. And we are in this country more likely to suffer from clinical symptoms of anxiety than anywhere else on the planet. Well, it is amazing that the United States wants to be first in everything. So, hey, why not? Let's be first in anxiety as well. Well, we can tell from your your accent that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you're a British transplant. So in in doing this book, uh, were you able to kind of gain a little bit of a perspective on what's going on here that maybe some of us don't even realize? Yeah, well, I think as an outsider, um, you know, some... When you come in to a place completely new, you perhaps see things, see things in a different way. And it was quite a culture shock. I mean, we moved here when my husband got a job in Silicon Valley. We moved from, you know, surly, gray London to beautiful, sun-drenched California. And, you know, I imagined that my life here was going to be absolutely perfect. You know, free of anxiety, the beaches, the weather, everything was going to be wonderful. But I started to notice very quickly that there was this real kind of sense of anxiety here that... You know, far from being in this land of kind of Instagram to perfection, people right. were anxious about their lives and not necessarily any happier than the people back in London who, <laughs> you know, were perhaps a little more negative, a bit more cynical, less positive and all the rest of it. So what are the reasons that, that you've kind of deciphered a little bit as to why Americans are so, so anxious right now? Well, I mean, I think you outlined a lot of them. I mean, there are lots of genuine reasons why life can bring anxiety, as you say, money worries, inequality, the state of the economy, healthcare, those sorts of big issues. But one of the things that I identified pretty early on was that um, people seem to be very culturally preoccupied with this idea of happiness, of finding happiness. And I found that I was having conversations with people and the same topic would come up again and again. People really kind of agonizing about it, you know. Am I happy? Am I as happy as my neighbor? Am I as happy as my friends? 
am I as happy as everybody on social media? Could I be happier if I if I tried harder? Yeah. And there seemed to be this real anxiety about, you know, being as happy as you could be. And I started looking into it. And this is a multi-billion dollar industry in the United States. You know, this industry that, that is devoted to this idea that if we just try a bit harder, if we do another thing, read another book, try another class, then we can become happier. And I think this is one of the big causes of anxiety in American society. You mentioned it being a multi-billion dollar industry through what avenues? Well, so there's, I mean, the traditional, what you would think of as the self-help industry, you know, the okay. kind of the books, the apps, the courses, you know, the, the self-help books that you see in the self-improvement um, section of the bookstore. That amounts to about an $11 billion industry, which, to put it in context, is about the same size as Hollywood. So, you know, the other great kind of sellers of this happy ever after idea. And then recently there's been a new um, kind of subsidiary industry. So to put it, you know, for want of a better word, you know, the, the kind of quasi-spiritual thing. So maybe the meditation, mindfulness, yoga. I mean, although these things are supposed to be spiritual practices, that amounts to probably the same amount again in terms of, uh, in terms of the size of the industry. And this is a huge kind of new thing. And it's this idea that, you know, if we just buy another app or read another book or try another thing, then this kind of new, improved version of ourselves will will be fully self-actualized and fully happy. So I think that in itself is causing anxiety. So then what is all of this doing to us then? What ends up being the impact, whether it be financial, cultural? I mean, it, it probably does cover a variety of different areas. Yeah, it does. I mean, I think that um, in itself, it's this idea of the, the American dream, you know, this idea that if you really work hard for something, then you can have it. And it's kind of just out of reach that we're just trying to, to get to this kind of happy ever after. And I think psychologically, that's pretty tough on people, you know, that it's just about striving because really our emotions don't work quite like that. You know, just by trying harder, we can't actually control our own emotions and make ourselves happier in that way. And it's having a huge impact culturally. I mean, in the book, I start to look at um, all different areas of life. I look at um, the workplace. I look at religion. I look at social media. I look at parenting. And these ideas, you know, it's not just confined to this, you know, if either you buy a self-help book or you don't, but these ideas about making ourselves as happy as possible and using it to be kind of productive and better citizens has kind of infiltrated all different areas of American life. I I would think, uh, focusing on the corporate end of this uh, for a second, I would think that there are people out there uh, that have a mix uh, of anxiety from both personal life and professional life, which just absolutely ends up being a, a toxic formula for them. And then I would also think there are those people out there that have that anxiety in their personal lives where, in some respects, going to the job, going to work ends up being you know, kind of that catharsis, that that time away from personal life. I probably saw yeah. that quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, work means obviously means different things to different people, and that depends on what your job is, how you feel about it, who your employer is. But I think that one trend that's becoming true across uh, the board, at least for professionals, is that we are working in America longer hours than almost anyone else in the world, and right. than ever be- than ever before was in you know in recent times. And so there's a kind of blurring between the lines between personal and uh, work. 
And, you know, we're never fully switched off. We're on our cell phones. We, you know, we're checking our email every five minutes. And there's talk about this new mantra, you know, instead of work-life balance, companies are starting to talk about work-life integration. Right. Which, you know, sounds great in theory. And, you know, it's a kind of PR message. But at the same time, it kind of means that you're never fully off the clock. (laughs) You know, that you always have your mind at work, you know. And I think it's something that works very well for employers and maybe less well for employees. You know, this whole idea. And I think there's been a move, you know, I've talked about in the book, this whole idea of happiness in the workplace. There's this idea now that it used to be that, you know, work was work and home was where you tried to find happiness and your social life and all the rest of it. And there's been a deliberate blurring of those boundaries. You know, you see it where workplaces are offering, you know, dentists and doctors and video games and, you know, free food and that sort of thing to keep people working longer hours. And, you know, even sending their staff on happiness training and mindfulness training, those sorts of things. It's a real blurring of the lines. Well, okay, you just brought up an interesting word, mindfulness. And I wanted to bring that up because in my life now, my kid's school is doing mindfulness training for the, for for my kids, 10, 10 and seven year old twins. And and (laughs) when this was brought forward, I was like, look, what hokey thing is is this actually, you know, what are they trying to sell me here? And, and, and and I've kind of come around a little bit on it because I think it does help kids it kind of give them, you know, a little bit less level of pressure when they're that that age, because seemingly yeah. our kids are feeling more pressure at a younger age than they've ever felt before. Absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's a similar trend. I mean, mindfulness, is, as you say, it's come to schools, it's come to the military, it's come to workplaces, it's in corporations. It's, it, it is a multi-billion dollar industry. Yeah. And I think my, mindfulness starts to feel like a little tiny, teeny band-aid on a much, much bigger problem. So, you know, you're, you say your kids are under so much pressure. And I think that's true of my kids and uh, kids across across the board. And same with adults in the workplace. You know, it's this idea that we work these incredibly long hours, that we're very stressed, that there's, you know, pressure on us to be more productive than ever before. Oh, and here's your hour of mindfulness training um, every week. <laughs> you know, it, it feels like you're not really addressing the actual problem. <laughs> that's know, you like, can't that's, pay your rent. You, can't, you don't have any health insurance. And, oh, you know, but try a bit of mindfulness. That's, yeah. like, that's, that's like trying to drop a, a drop of water in the Sahara Desert and saying that everything <laughs> will be cured, right? Right, absolutely. You're in a burning building and here's a tiny little fire extinguisher and, you know, try and sort it out. And, you know, I think the the other thing about mindfulness is that, you know, there are great grand claims for it. And I'm not saying that mindfulness is not helpful to certain people. I'm sure it is. But the evidence for it is much weaker than is commonly claimed. You know, there was a big kind of meta-analysis by the government a, a year or two ago, which showed that there was no real difference in benefit between doing mindfulness and doing any kind of relaxation technique. So whether that, you know, whatever that is for you, whether it's, you know, getting a pedicure or just talking to a friend or, um, you know, some kind of listening to some music or whatever, mindfulness is of no benefit beyond that. Ruth, I, I can say there are lots of things that I like to do to kind of give myself a level of peace. Getting a pedicure will not be one of them. I, I, I can honestly, I can I'm not honestly, with you on that, I'm afraid. I can, I can honestly say that. Ruth Whitman is our guest. She's the author of the book, America the Anxious. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. If you feel like you are one of these Americans that are anxious right now, give us a call and tell us maybe something that you do to try and relieve it. 
844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Going back to the corporate for a second, uh, yeah. were, there, were there companies that you talked to that really showed that there was a level of happiness there or is pretty much every company have a level of angst to it that is just it's it's almost inbred in the company in the corporate structure well that's interesting i mean i think you know some obviously some companies are better places to work than others there's no doubt about it i mean i went to visit zappos which um i don't know if you've heard of but it's very famous for pushing this yep Happiness agenda. I mean, the, the 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 boss of the company, Tony Shea, is very interested in positive psychology. His message, his company message, is delivering happiness. Yeah. And you go to that company, and there are balloon animals and parades and fireworks, and they have um, out of hours socialising and free snacks, and you know, and there's this idea that you have to, you don't have to, but it's very strongly encouraged that you socialise with your colleagues a lot out of the workplace. And I think this is a kind of corporate culture which is becoming more common. It's, as I said before, this kind of blurring of the lines between what is your boss's business and your boss's concern and what yeah. isn't. And for some people, that works great. You know, some people want to go to work and, you know, have a parade come past their desk and do a little disco and that kind of thing. For me, it would, as a kind of awkward British person, I think it would be absolutely <laughs> horrendous. But, you know, it's different for everybody. Well, and just the fact that, that some companies uh, feel like, uh, they they make a a Friday happy hour at the office, kind, yeah. kind of the norm. Uh, I mean, I know a friend of mine worked for a a big retail company that's based here in Philadelphia, and I remember her telling me about the fact that you know they would have the occasional you know like once a month kind of you know beer bash at the office. And, and, you know, and they were playing, you know, they were playing drinking games there at the office. And I was like, really? You know, that's, that, that's kind of the, the level we've taken it to. Right. And I think, I mean, that's particularly common around here in Silicon Valley and, you know, that kind of California culture. It's this idea that your workmates should be your friends. It's cultural fit, they call it, you know, people, you know, it's the company culture and you should take part in that. But I think it's problematic for a lot of reasons. I mean, for me, I'm a, a mom, I work, I have young kids. I don't want to be getting drunk in the office with my <laughs> right. workmates. I, you know, I want to be home. And this pressure that, you know, the, the office has to be my social life, that I have to, you know, not just do my job and, and, and that's fine and collect my paycheck, but it has to, you know, I have to emotionally perform and be part of it, this whole big thing. You know, I don't want that. And I think it's tough on women, particularly this socializing culture. So then with families. So then do you see this is obviously partly is something that's driven by millennials. Um, then yeah. do you see this as something that will continue on for quite a long time? Or will that next generation after millennials, that Gen Z generation, will they look at it a little bit differently? That's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say because there could well be a backlash and people would just say, you know, just give me some space. I just want to go home. I don't want to be, you know, doing my dry cleaning at work. And, you know, I mean, there was a, a thing in the news recently that Facebook were actually paying for their female employees to have their eggs frozen so that they could delay childbearing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I feel like that is a kind of it's getting to the point where it's an intrusion on your personal liberty, your personal space and your private life. And, you know, they're not forcing anyone to do this, but at the same time, you know, it's a little bit by little. And I think there might be a backlash. I think people might just say, hang on a second, you know, my time should be my own. This is a job at the end of the day. 
We'll know we have reached uh, too far of a limit if uh, corporations start putting washers and dryers in their, <laughs> you know, in their in their corporate buildings. Right. Yeah. I mean, people do that. I mean, you joke, but they actually do have dry cleaners and people who do your laundry at a lot of these companies. And, you know, especially these big um, tech companies, you know, Facebook, Google, etc. I mean, yeah, if you want someone to do your laundry, I don't think those people are there actually with the washer dryers themselves and putting the coins in. But, you know, you can find someone at these companies to do your laundry for you. But I think I think to a degree that, that some of these companies believe that, that this is the way to go. Uh, because you're you're building culture with it within the corporation, uh, right. and and I th- going back to something I said before, uh, you know there are times and there are people that uh, you know may be single and that may be the majority of their life and that works perfectly for them. And then yeah. there then there may be people that are you know are married and they have four kids and they may stay an hour later just to kind of you know delay going home for a little bit and and. <laughs> see that yeah exactly and so you know it really kind of brings up the conversation of culture uh both you know in the business world but also in your personal lives these days yeah and i think that the the key element here should be choice i mean company culture i think when you're talking about making your company a good place to work that attracts good employees and all the rest of it obviously there's nothing wrong with that but i think cultural fit can quite often be a kind of little smokescreen for we only want a certain type of person to work at this company and that can be problematic for diversity and for all kinds of reasons so it's you know cultural fit means that you're kind of a big funster and that you drink with the with the boys every night and as you say it could work very well for a 24 year old software engineer who doesn't have you know anywhere else to be but it might not work so well for someone with a family or from a different kind of culture and i think it's easy to to just say you know, it has no bearing on your ability to do the job well. And I think that, it, it, you know, it can be it can be a very sort of strict boundary for who do we actually want to be working in our place and for what reason. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call. 844-942-7866. If you'd like to join in, our guest is Ruth Whitman, who is the author of the book, America the Anxious, How Our Pursuit of Happiness is Creating a Nation of Nervous Wrecks. 844-942-7866, or if you can't get your phone, send us a comment via Twitter, either at bizradio, B-I-Z radio 111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So then I guess with all this pursuit for happiness, a, a little a little less happiness ends up maybe being a good thing from time to time? <laughs> well, not a little less happiness, but I think your people are, you know, paradoxically likely to experience more happiness if they stop trying quite so hard. Right. You know, I think when happy people start to, talk, you know, this is one of the things I noticed when we first moved here. People talked about happiness almost like people talk about going on a diet. You know, it's like there's no pleasure involved in it. But, you know, if I just try a bit harder and, you know, or make me a good person or a better, more improved person to do this. And, you know, I think to just take a step back, stop worrying about it, stop really pursuing it so relentlessly and just kind of hope that it happens along the way, I think will actually lead to to more happiness. And there is quite a lot of research that backs that up, too. 844-942-7866. We're talking with uh, Ruth Whitman, author of the book, America the Anxious. Your comments are welcome. Or give us a uh, comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. The concern, I would think, for some people is that, kind of like I said with with my kids and, and, and mindfulness, 
is that we have a generation uh, of people, many of them are very anxious to begin with, and we're just basically setting ourselves up for another generation to kind of follow in that path. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. You talk about your kids. I mean, this is a really big trend in, in parenting at the moment, that we are so, as a generation you know, of, of parents, I think so invested in our kids' happiness. You know, I think when I was a kid, you know, my mom just was like, oh, you know, off you go, go and play on your own, do your own thing. And she wasn't kind of micromanaging my happiness. She wasn't micromanaging every moment of my day, optimizing my experience. And I think we're becoming these helicopter parents who hover over our kids a lot. Yeah. And, you know, people, uh, kids of college age now are showing more anxiety than any previous uh, generation. You know, there was one study recently that showed that a um, average high school or college student now has the same levels of anxiety as a psychiatric patient in the 1950s of a similar age. Right. And that's, you know, grading it on the same test. So, you know, I think we are. We're, we're creating a generation of anxious kids. And then you throw in the fact, I mean, they're, they're, they're feeling anxious from their parents and, uh, you know, going into college. And then you throw on top the college debt that they're having to deal with, the majority of them. It, it, just, yes. it just amplifies the problem. Amplifies, absolutely. And I think there's this culture in um, American life, which is so uh, much about, individual responsibility it's you know it's your own responsibility to be happy and you've seen these memes everywhere you know happiness is a choice you know just work a little harder try a little harder and i think it can quite quickly turn into this idea that if you're not quite as happy you know it's somehow your own fault you know you're not trying hard enough right and i think also that for this generation you know have grown up with social media happiness is this is really the kind of currency of social media, isn't it? That, you know, it's all about putting your best foot forward and putting your blissful photos on Facebook where everybody's having a great time and everyone's yeah. had a great party and your Instagram looks perfect and everyone's talking about being authentic all the time. But obviously it's about as authentic as, as, you know, as nothing. And, um, and so, you know, I think that puts a great pressure on people now. Let's go to Derby, Kansas. Lauren, go ahead. Hello, oh, Lauren. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. I, I was just going to make that pretty much a similar comment is that I think one thing that I've noticed in America is that we've pathologized anything other than happiness, you know? So yeah. if, you're, if you're not happy, if you happen to be sad about something, if you happen to be unsure, if you happen to be down or, or angry or anything that's not happy... It's it's a bad thing. It needs to be medicated out of you, or it needs to be trained out of you, or it needs yeah. to be you know. It's like it's this 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 assumption that you're broken if you experience the full spectrum of emotion. And I think that it's you know that that lack of permission to 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 experience those other emotions is is contributing to the anxiousness as well. Absolutely. I mean, that's the whole thing. You know, this whole culture of positivity, positive thinking. If you're positive, you're a good person, whereas if you're negative, you're a bad person. But obviously, everybody experiences the full range of emotions. You know, we wouldn't be human if we don't. And I think it's an excellent point that you've raised, that we're almost shaming people for feeling normal emotions, you know, for feeling anxious or, or, or worried or unsure or unhappy or miserable, you know, and this idea that, you know, you're just not trying hard enough to, to be positive. Lauren, thanks very much for the for the comment. Uh, the, the, you mentioned social media, and, and obviously, social media is designed to kind of make people happy. But seemingly, I think there there are times <laughs> where it, it just drives people batty, doesn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, social media, obviously, it's not one thing. You know, there's lots of different ways that people interact with social media. But one of the big things, I think, is this idea that, especially the way we interact with our friends, it's all about making our life look as blissfully wonderful as it possibly can be. And, you know, it's very easy. You just compare yourself to others. And, you know, I do it myself. You know, we went apple picking in an orchard recently with my kids. And frankly, it was kind of a miserable day. And it was really hot. And our kids were whining the whole time. And it was, you know, there was no water. There were no restrooms. But yet I still posted, you know, the one probably five-minute period, a picture of that on my Facebook account of my kids looking smiling and, you know, holding up the apples and looking so happy. And, you know, everybody looking at that would think, you know, what a perfect day they've had. And I do the same. You know, I look at my neighbors or my friends' Facebook feeds. Why is my life not like that? You know, why does it not feel like that? But then I think they're probably thinking the same about me. So, yeah, we're, we're kind of, it's never been easier to compare ourselves unfavorably to other people. Well, and probably the only reason that you see negative stuff a lot of times on, on Facebook or, or Twitter is because, well, at least now, because of the election cycle we're going through. Other than that, right. face, Facebook's pictures of great kids and, and, you know, unique stories, puppies that, you know, are, you, yeah. that you get saved, you know, animals that yeah. do crazy things. That's, that's what it's all about. And I think there's a difference as well on social media where people are posting anonymously and when people are posting as themselves. And I think anonymous uh, social media is where you see a lot of this real kind of hate and nasty, you know, misogyny and horrible things coming out, you know, and it can become a real sort of cesspit. But it is absolutely, it's these extremes of, you know, either everything's wonderfully, beautifully Instagrammed, perfect, and here's my brunch and my whatever. Right. And then, or it's just this kind of sewage of horrible you know toxic stuff that comes out <laughs> ruth thank you very much for the uh, for joining us on the show uh we have to end it thank there thank you for having me thank you very much ruth it's a very entertaining book thank you for uh, coming on today oh it's my pleasure thank you again. You, you got it have a great day ruth whitman the book is uh, america the anxious how our pursuit of happiness is creating a nation of nervous wrecks for more business news and analysis from knowledge at wharton please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Dot dot